Before we start the episode, I want to announce some bonus content for my Patreon supporters. This summer, I recorded an interview with Bruce Sword of the British rock band The Pineapple Thief, a very wonderful creative band featuring Gavin Harrison, also the drummer for King Crimson. Now, Bruce was a great interview, but I had some technical problems during the recording that made my audio sound less than stellar and ultimately caused us to stop the interview. We were not able to restart, so it's really only about half the length of a regular interview. But that's still very substantial, and I cannot recommend their new album, 2018's Dissolution, enough. And we got through discussing two full songs from that. So fans of this show will definitely want to check that out. Go to patreon.com slash nakedlyexaminedmusic, and you can get that full interview right now. All I want is someone to love me and give me sex whenever I want it. All I ask for is instant pleasure, instant pleasure, instant pleasure. You're listening to Nakedly Examined Music, a podcast about songs and songwriters. My name is Mark Lintonmeyer. My guest for episode 86 is Seth Swirsky. He was a staff songwriter with Warner Chapel Music for over 20 years, penning, for instance, Taylor Dane's first hits. His first big success was a song for Air Supply in 1985. His greatest triumph is the first song we'll be discussing today, Love is a Beautiful Thing. And you'll be hearing the version of that by legendary Al Green from his 1993 album, Don't Look Back. But right now, you're listening to Instant Pleasure. It's the title track from his 2004 debut solo album, you may be familiar with the prior version that Rufus Wainwright recorded for the Big Daddy soundtrack. After that, we're going to move to his second soul album, Watercolor Day from 2010, discussing his song Matchbook Cover. Then we're going to turn to his side project, The Red Button, that is him and singer-songwriter Mike Rickberg. We're going to talk about the song Picture from their second album, As Far As Yesterday Goes, from 2011. And we're going to close out by listening to a trilogy of songs. It's really one continuous suite from his most recent solo album, that's 2016's Circles and Squares. These songs are Shine, Circles and Squares, and Go. For more information about Seth Swirsky, see Seth.com. For more information about this podcast, check out NakedlyExaminedMusic.com. So I will have played a little bit of Instant Pleasure from your 2004 debut solo album. But of course, that's not your debut. In fact, that's not even the original version, the originally released version of the song, that you had a whole career or two careers as a jingle writer first and then a staff songwriter. So we'll get to the most famous result of that, the Al Green song. But this song itself was released by Rufus Wainwright in the late 90s at some point. Give us a little picture of the transition from being the behind-the-scenes guy to, no, I can not only record this myself, I'll even play most of the instruments myself. And it's a you know an immaculate, <laughs> this is not like a songwriter, it's the songwriter version. It's just the guitar and vocal. You know, this is like a fully developed, I think this easily exceeds the previous version. Yeah, but it wasn't until 2004 that you got around to actually unveiling yourself in this way. Do you want to talk about that transition? Sure. Uh, let me start from the beginning. When I was 19, I wrote a few jingles that were successful. They got onto the world. Thomas's Toaster Cakes was the biggest one for Thomas's English Muffins. I was a student at Dartmouth College at the time, but I always knew since the age of seven, I wanted to be a Beatle. I didn't know what that meant exactly. As a songwriter, as a performer, whatever it meant in 1967 to be a Beatle for a seven-year-old. So I just was involved. I just started writing jingles and whatever. had some success. How would you even get the connection? You know, I could sit in my house as a 19-year-old and write Thomas's jingle. How did you even get that connection in the first place? 
I believe in what I tell people all the time is you have to do 99% of the work. So I thought of four different campaigns. In other words, one of them was, I just made up at the top of my head, a hot dog is a man's best friend for armor hot dogs. I wasn't commissioned to do it. And then I wrote a jingle around that. And I made four of those for Ritz crackers and whatever it was. It didn't matter. You do the work. I just made demos of those songs, very, very simple. And I just shopped them around to every jingle producer that there was in New York City. I took some time off of college to do that. And you put out 30 things and you hope to get one that puts you on the map. And it was the same of songwriting. I just kept writing songs while I was in college and going out to New York City all the time from Hanover to Hampshire, just getting in my car after my last class and hawking my song to anybody that would listen. Somebody had a contact, somebody knew somebody who knew somebody. I just took those notes and I put them in a file so I didn't lose them. And then I was fortunate to have a meeting with Erwin Schuster, who was one of the great song pluggers of all time at Chapel Music, which was the venerable, oldest music publisher in the world with the Bee Gees and with Sting and with everybody that there was, you know, the police. So I'm sitting there looking over New York City in this incredible office of this man. And I put on a song I had just written and he gave me a songwriting contract right then and there. I was a junior in college. And he said, we're going to pitch the song to Barbara Streisand this week. And I'm thinking, oh my God, I got to go back up to school. I got an art history test. I got to take, but wait, you mean Streisand? And this is when Streisand was doing Guilty and all that Barry Gibbs stuff. So I lost out. I found, I did get a phone call from him. And he said, uh, your song wasn't chosen by Barbara Streisand. You lost out to a guy named Andrew Lloyd Webber. And I remember thinking to myself at the time, here I am like 20 years old, 21 years old, whatever. I thought, I was actually happy. I thought, I know I can play in this game. I know that this is not just a, you know, throw in the dart. I, I can do this. And so when I got out of college, I, I was a song clever. I pitched other people's songs, but I was writing on the side. And I pitched the song, and before I knew it, Air Supply did it. It was my first gold record, and I was all of, what, 24 years old or whatever, their big comeback record. I had a gold record on the wall. It was like, all right, you know? I kept writing more songs for more people, and before I knew it, one song was recorded by this girl named Leslie Wonderman, and she then changed her name to Taylor Dane, and I had a number one song around the world called Tell It To My Heart. I followed that up with her second top 10 song, which is called Prove Your Love, her first number one song. And uh, I was writing for a lot of people back then, Smokey Robinson, The Four Tops, a lot of bands that I grew up with in the 60s and 70s, loving, and I was so thrilled that I could write for them. And then about 90, I don't know when it was, early 90s, I got a phone call from someone at a record company saying, hey, we have this new band, Charles and Eddie, black guy and a Hispanic guy and it's just really cool. And they liked my pop sensibility. You know, it was like, uh, I just wrote pop songs. That's what I got from Leonard and McCarthy. Pop music. I just love three minute songs with three choruses, basically speaking. That just, you've had a full meal if you listen to the songs, even if they're two minutes long. You feel like you've just had a full buffet. And that's kind of how I approach songwriting. You know, I, I try and keep it simple. There's no filler to it. And you feel good. And you sing. That's what I feel like I try to, to accomplish. You know, that you just feel good vibes. You want to put that record on again, like I did with the Beatles song. Well, it turns out that I went down to a recording session down in Greenwich Village. It was May. I forgot what year, but it was a gorgeous day. But the producer was there and he said, I was supposed to write songs for this new band, Charles and Eddie. 
And the guy said, well, they're coming to the studio in 15 minutes. I said, what? You expect me to write this in 15 minutes? He goes, yeah, it's the time you got to do it. So I said to the guy, hey, get me up this sound and let me hear that beat and blah, blah, blah. And right on the spot, as if it was meant to be, I just wrote Love's a Beautiful Thing right there. And as I finished it up, they walked into the studio and I said hello to the guys and they said, okay, they're ready to record right now. I said, well, I haven't finished the second verse yet, uh, lyrically. And they said, it's okay, it's okay. It's just a demo and we'll record it. That's why you hear two verses on the demo version. Now, I always preferred that demo version. I love that version. It's very present. It's their first time singing it. I took that back to LA with me. I wrote a second verse. And they then put it out, not this demo version, but they put it out on their first album. But their treatment of it was a little bit more Marvin Gaye than this particular version, this mm-hmm. demo version. And I didn't like it. It's got a little vibe to it, the one that ended up on the record, but I love the demo version. So I thought, you know what? I'm going to try and get the song recorded by someone that treats it like the demo. I pitched it to Arthur Baker, who was, you know, we produce all of Hall and Oates, and he uh, was doing Al Green for a comeback record. And he grabbed the song right away and he brought me out of the studio and I heard Al Green's voice on my song. And I thought famous people do many of my songs and it's very thrilling because it's like a time machine for me back to my green chair in the corner of my room growing up where I just listened to music. The moment I got home from school every day, I would do my geometry homework and listen to music in headphones, which is exactly what I do today. You know, I don't do anything different than I did as a teenager growing up. Nothing different at night. I love to sit in a chair, put on headphones, play music loud. Most of the same music, Spanky and our Sunday will never be the same, or Waterloo Sunset, or God Only Knows, ELO, all that great music I still love. And I, I do basically the same thing today that I did when I was 17 years old. Al Green records the song, I'm like, wow. I grew up just listening to every song he did. The beauty of his version and what blew me away is that in his original version of the song, which lasts for over five minutes, there is a three-minute single version. But in the long version of the song, at the beginning of the song when he gets in and then the outro of the song, he's so excited to be singing my song. He mentions all of his top 10 hits during my song. He goes, let's stay together because I'm tired of being alone. This song must have felt to him like the encapsulation of his career. And that was obviously another feeling. And I mean, it's great just to have Algley do your song. And it's great to listen to that and all that comes with that. But it was a real kind of tying up with a bow to hear him kind of acknowledge that this song had made him do that. I think quite naturally. That was obviously a tremendous thrill. And uh, then it's gone on since there. Celine Dion recorded the song on August 31st, 1997. Why do I remember the day? Because that was the night that Princess Diana died. And she was so close with Princess Diana that she decided, this is not good luck that I'm singing this song. So she took my song off of her next record. That record ended up selling 31 million copies. That was about a $10 million loss for me. (laughs) (laughs) But then the interesting thing was that there was a Princess Diana tribute album where McCartney was on it and Bee Gees and Brian Wilson. This record that was exploding off the charts and everybody was buying it. And it turns out that Tina Turner recorded the same song Celine was singing, Love is a Beautiful Thing. So it was kind of very full circle. 
And then it became the theme song of about 10 movies. Legally Blonde, Two Weeks Notice. It was the song that seemed to sum up a number of big Hollywood movies. This is what I believe.
Let's get into a little bit of the details. So when you're laying down this demo, you had control of the entire arrangement at that point, right? Or are you working with the artist to make the demo arrangement in terms of, you know, you've got your main thing, you've got your intervening middle part, which is basically a keyboard riff, which when it comes to the Al Green version, there's a little guitar over it. But, the, you know, obviously the Al Green version goes, once you've established that groove, like the song to you seems to be, it's the melody. In fact, it doesn't even seem to matter if it's written on keyboard or guitar, like it's not necessarily dependent on that. It's just like a jingle, just like the freaking Thomas's song. You don't think of the backing instrumentation of the Thomas's song. You think of that melody. And so that's why, you know, it's very strange that this Taylor Dane song could be yours and also this very beatles guitar stuff that we're going to hear. But if you think of it just in terms of the commonalities in the melody, it could groove more or it could not groove more. Like that's not what determines your style. The style is just this addictive earworm melody thing is that really what you're pitching and then well i have to for a demo i have to put on the rest of the sounds but you're de-emphasizing that you know that whoever buys this is going to change that stuff they're going to make it longer they're going to make it shorter they're going to put in a different middle section that kind of thing great questions there's some baseball players that hit long home runs that's their job some guys are great defensively and that's why they're paid they've got a great glove what i'm good at is i'm a melody guy i grew up when I put on a Beatles record, I didn't take it off except to turn it over to the other side. And I always felt that they always, it was just one straight listen. Almost all the bands that I've ever liked. They were never like, I like that song, but I hate the rest of the record. So melody is so important. It's what makes a song. When people say, I listen to Dylan for the lyrics. I don't believe that at all. I don't believe any of that. I don't believe that Bob Dylan didn't have a good voice. A better singer would have made those songs better. Not true. Dylan's voice brought you in. They were perfect for his songs. But the thing that made his songs were his fantastic, underrated melodies that he then put drapes in the room. And the drapes are the lyrics. The lyrics are really the furniture in the room. And so I'm not downplaying lyrics. I mean, look at Bernie Taupin. Look at Bob Dylan. Look at both Lennon and McCartney and George Harrison. Great lyrics. The point is that it's melody that draws you in. That's the thing. Melody is, to me, the cement for the house, the foundation. So people were always surprised. They said, oh, you wrote Taylor to my heart. You're Taylor Dan. I didn't think of you as a dance guy. I said, well, they always said, you're a Beatles guy. You like that kind of thing. I said, I'm a melody guy. Taylor to my heart is a melody. Right. The way that it was completed, the reason that it was a hit, the thing that goes to your through your head is that the chorus melody but just you know the thing that hits you in the face right now that kind of makes that particular recording dated is the dun, 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 you know is that particular 1987 synth bass style in fact i'll point folks at your acoustic version of this that's on the web you know just this is playing to youtube it's not a, a formal recorded version instant pleasure is a, it's a different category that you know it still works in your style as a fully developed thing i do think it would be fun to do one of those songwriter records where you do these guitar versions of weird 
weirdly dated synth sounds songs, do the air supply song, or do you feel like when you write those songs that you know you're going to sell, that for the most part, they're kind of maybe less personal in terms of, you know, is it a fundamentally different approach in the way that you're writing the lyrics, say? Well, there's two ways to approach a song when you're writing it for another person. One is to listen to everything they did and try to imagine that you're them. And what do you want to say on your next record? Do you want to talk about love? Because that's all that you do as an artist. Or do you want to stretch out a little bit? And so you really try and get in the head of that artist and think, what could that artist do? And if the other approach is, I don't care what any other artist does. I'm just going to write good songs and then pitch them. I can do both things. My first job out of college was to write, I was a professional songwriter. I wrote a specific song for Air Supply. I knew the, the key of that they sang in. I knew all the stuff about it. And I really tried to think, well, that Jim Steinman sound is kind of hot right now. So I wrote that kind of a song. Didn't mean it was going to be successful, but you cut down the odds as opposed to, I'm just going to write any song and pitch it to them. But there are two ways you go about doing it. And that I would shuttle between the two ways, whatever got me on that record. And then I completely veered away with that when I became my own recording artist in the early 2000s. And the song Instant Pleasure, in a way, kind of was the turning point in many ways. I really thought to myself, I was sitting on the couch and I had a TV there and there was my computer and, you know, cell phones were only five or six years old, basically late nineties. And I thought, what do I want to do right now? Do I want to call somebody on this cool phone? Do I want to open up my computer and read a newspaper online? Do I want to go to the 500 channels that I could? And I thought, wow, I just like want instant pleasure. I want to be pleased right at the moment. I noticed that about myself. Picked up a guitar, I completely wrote Instant Pleasure in about 10 minutes, the whole thing. And somehow it got in the hands of somebody at Sony Pictures, and they said, this would be perfect for the Big Daddy soundtrack in the movie, for Adam Sandler's movie, which turned out to be his biggest selling movie. And, you know, really cool. I went down there, I saw the picture. There's only 10 of us in the room. One of the people was the lead singer for Guns N' Roses, Axel. So we're sitting there together. It's just the funniest thing in the world. You run into people when you're a songwriter. You just you have a million stories because you never know where you're going to be. But that kind of happened. And Rufus Wainwright did a version of it. I thought it was really a good version. I really liked it. But then I thought, you know, I'd like to do my own version of the song. And I ended up doing a whole album's worth of songs. And I will tell you that just like making your first record, I wrote a few baseball books. I wrote that jingle, started writing jingles back when, you know, in, in those early days. I paint a lot. I made a documentary on the Beatles. I'm only mentioning that because you have to just jump in the water. You can't say, well, I've never made a documentary before. I, I shouldn't do that. I got to take courses and how to set up a camera. But no, you don't. I notice that every time I go to a party in LA, there's a pool there and everybody has their bathing suit on. They dip their feet in the water and they say it's too cold. They don't go in. I just jump in and figure it out along the way. And these are only tools that I use to express myself. A paintbrush for painting, a guitar for songwriting, a video camera for documentaries, other things for baseball books and other things that I do. I just believe you got to just dive in, dive in, make mistakes. That's part of the whole thing. Just if you love it, go there. So that's what led to me making my first album at 44. I just thought, hey, you know, I'm ready. This is what I want to do. These are things I want to say. I've now made three albums, solo records, and I've made three albums with my band, The Red Button. So that got out a lot of that expression, too, where you're not constricted 
to write for other artists and you're thinking, what would they want to say? You're very much like, whatever I write is what I want to say. Well, yeah, let's use that as a transition to our second song, Mashbook Cover, from your second album, 2010's Watercolor Day. Why did you pick this song? Give us a little background of where you were by the time you got to the second record and what this song in particular is about. I always loved John Lennon's album, Plastic Ono Band, his first solo record that came out in 1970. Equally, I loved Paul McCartney's solo record that came out in 1970, McCartney. And I didn't know what a big influence they would have on me when I recorded my own stuff. And the influence is that I really love playing all my own instruments on songs. And I love writing the song, basically, but also having the freedom in the studio to experiment. And I was down in the studio recording Watercolor Day, and I just uh, heard a certain beat in my head. And I just started recording drums on it, and then I put a keyboard on it. And before I knew it, I was singing a certain melody, and I was just creating the song in the studio in many ways. And it felt very free to me. It felt like a free thing. I didn't do too many takes vocally. I like the keyboards. They sound very much like Pet Sounds-ish type thing. I don't go for those things. I don't say, what would Brian Wilson do or what would Paul McCartney do? But you're discovering who you are through your recording and through your songwriting. So that song just encapsulates a real fun moment I had in the studio. And, you know, there it is. All right, so let's play it. And I'm going to, since it's a short enough song, I'm going to go ahead and tack on so we can talk about album sequencing the prelude that's right before the I'm just saying prelude, but we can talk about the relationship when we hear them both together.
whole song was pretty short. You had this prelude that was right before it that seemed to serve as the intro to me because the song itself is just bam, did, 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 like you're there. So having the intro makes sense, even though it's actually the prelude of a different song, of a song that's much later on the album. What went into that decision to sequence it in this way and make this sound like it's the intro to this song, even though they weren't written together? I have a lot of bits of songs, and I also write some songs full on for their three minutes, 25 seconds, three minutes, two minutes, 40 seconds. I'm generally on the left side of, you know, it would be very rare to see a four-minute song. Definitely never five minutes. But it's around three minutes, two and a half minutes, something like that. But I have a lot of little bits. And if you remember, a lot of the Beatles recordings, you know, on Abbey Road, the second side of Abbey Road, it's just little bits and the White Album and things like that where they threw in certain things. And even a lot of the solo records that they've had, that seems to be the style. I don't, think to myself, oh, they would do this, so I should do this. I don't mean that in any way. But you know, you have a certain style that comes out of what you listen to. So I thought to myself, in answer to your question, hey, that bit would go great there. Or I had that prelude to, uh, you know, I'm just saying. And then what I loved was, it was really an attempt of me to do what McCartney does a lot. He kind of brings songs around at the end of a record, and there's a coda. And so I kind of wrote, I'm just saying, you know, the thing at the end, the fuller song is I brought in about six or seven different themes from the album as a way of wrapping up this album that had 19 songs on it. Now it has 19 songs, but it's still the same amount of time that you get for an album that has 11 songs. They're just longer songs. And I just like the idea of tying it all up with the coda of I'm just saying and you get in many of the themes that I have on the record itself. So that to me was a challenge that I wanted to see if I could accomplish and really make this work a full work. So from the beginning to the end, you really felt like that's a larger thing than just songs. The guy had a vision for an overall piece. Yeah, I of course thought of the end of Abbey Road, the Her Majesty song. Let me just share a short anecdote about that is actually, I used to, you know, I would buy LPs, but then I would record them to cassette so I could carry them around with me. And in the case of Abbey Road, it's kind of long and whatever cassette I was recording on, it actually cut off some, Her Majesty is already a really tiny song just smacked at the end of the album. It actually even cut it off in the middle. So I thought that's actually how it went, that it just, that was my impression for at least a year, I think, <laughs> that that was a way of songwriting is to, hey, just, I just had a little melody idea. I'm just going to like, as a little coda, as a post, we've had the big production value of the end to wrap up the record, carry that weight a long time, and then have this little anticlimactic, and I love that idea of songwriting of, you know, it's very spontaneous, you know, what I actually then heard, oh, he actually does repeat it. You know, it's a little more of a traditional song structure than I thought. It's not simply one idea. This came to mind as I was going that you have other songs on this album. Big Mistake is one, you know, that where you you'd kind of just throw out an idea. Like it doesn't develop into a whole song. It just passes to the next thing. And that's exactly, of course, what was going on. She came in through the bathroom window and the, you know, the other things on side two of Abbey Road, that it's just a, a stretch of these things. But the contrast to me, though, was striking was that, well, unlike Her Majesty, which really might have been just tossed off in one take as a afterthought that they just stuck there, even if you do something that is 
30 seconds long or, you know, like this intro to the prelude, it's still quite a lot of time, at least seemingly went into making it a nice production. And then I got to the end of your record and you have the song Mashed Potato, which actually really is the, well, I mean, you dubbed on some applause and stuff, but it like, that really is the Her Majesty shtick. But I just think maybe I was interpreting this as starting with your affiliation with jingles is that having these song ideas and like, maybe that's enough. Maybe you don't have to repeat it twice and have a bridge and just put it out there. The melody works by itself and then move on to the next thing. Music writing and music listening is not linear. And I think a lot of people, they think, well, you know, the song needs to be this. And then we just have to follow it by another song that's four minutes long and another song. And I just think it's like, you got to go into it thinking, I want to have fun and I want to surprise myself. And if I'm surprising myself, then other people might be surprised when they're listening. And like life, it's made up of a lot of different moments that you don't know are coming. And that's what makes life fun. (laughs) So Big Mistake was one of those kind of really fun things where there was a bunch of guys in the studio that day working on something. I don't know. You know, I wasn't recording. I was doing some editing or whatever. And I had just had this melody. And I said, hey, guys, can you uh, go by the mic there and It was just a bunch of burly guys doing the melody I ended up writing for that. And everybody was laughing. We were just having fun. And I thought, this has got to go on there. This has got to go on there because it throws you for a little bit of a loop. And then it sets something else up, maybe a more traditional type song. So I think that listening to music should be an experience which is not, as I say, linear. Something that surprises you here and there and just makes you think, wow, that was fun. That's something I wouldn't normally hear. Yeah, well, let's apply that specifically to Matchbook Cover. You know, you've got this startling, it, it is a fully developed song, but it's almost episodic. I mean, the verses, I wasn't sure lyrically how the themes connected within between the verses. And then you hit this B section with the sort of bad finger piano breakdown part that almost seems like a different song. It's only because you go back to the A section at the end that makes it, okay, this was a coherent, a little sweet that's what I felt at the time. I just was going along with that kind of bouncy melody thing with Matchbook Cover. And then it just felt like, okay, now it needs a, not a Hey Jude section, but that kind of a piano or ELO type of thing. And things just feel natural to me. I don't analyze them too much when it comes to music. You know, I just do them. And if they don't ring true to me, I just do not believe in trying to put a, what's the, the phrase, putting a square peg in a round hole or You can jam things in as much as you want to do with music and recording, but you can't fool yourself, nor should you. I believe in trying to really please myself. When I set out to do any piece of art, whatever it is, the only audience is myself. It's an audience of one. That's not the way it used to be. In my 20s, I had 30 people in my head. Is the record company going to like it? Are the publishers going to like it? Are the artists going to like it? I was the last one on that list. And that was the opposite of the way it should be. Now, I just set out to really, I just want to go back to my songs and listen over and over and sing to them as if I'm buying my favorite art. Because if you're doing that, then there are other people that that there's a likelihood that they'll listen to. But you've got to please yourself. You've just got to do it. You know, that's paramount. 
Well, and I like that this impatience, you know, to get on with it, you know, so that it's the maximum fun per minute kind of even goes into this Hey Jude section. I mean, the, the reason that Hey Jude sometimes gets criticized is because it sticks around for a while and Long and Winding Road even demands a little more of your, come on, just immerse yourself in this 1940s ballad aesthetic that a lot of Beatles fans, you know, that's kind of the limit of what they can take. But the way that you did it, was it only a dream that we created? And so you got to have a two, four measure. We're not going to finish the measure. We're just going to move right on to the next section. And the whole thing, you know, it has a nice little contemplative, very Abbey Road-esque, the slow section where, you know, after you've got a couple stanzas of lyrics that you have this, the nice, uh, I'm trying to remember specifically what <laughs> it's a very McCartney-esque guitar thing. I could say that over a very super McCartney-esque bass part. Like I love that particular. I don't think about it as I do it. It just feels right. Having the Abbey Road Mellotron, you know, that gets louder and that is cutting off. Again, I didn't like refresh Abbey Road. Which song in particular am I thinking of? But I think part of it is not being afraid of avoiding these quotes. I mean, going. That's going to bring Beach Boys to mind. I felt like you, between the first album and the second album, you felt maybe a little more free to quote in that way because like it's just fun it's a way of expressing yourself whereas instant pleasure that whole album seemed a little more i guess less quote heavy i want to say distinctively you but that's not the right way to put it because if you're quoting something and you're being natural about it it's because it's scratched deeply into your brain like that's why it's coming back out and it's fun the only tribute part of it would be that i'm not gonna catch myself and say i can't do that i can't go bah 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 because that's that's gonna bring to mind something else the funny thing is on that section of national cover where you hear the bass going down, you hear my voice is doing but it's following the bass, right? That's right out of Ram. That's right what Paul does on Dear Boy. You know, he's mirroring the bass. And he just did that because he wanted to. He just thought that would be a cool sound. And of course, he's kind of my teacher in that way, you know, because I listen to all those records. It just felt natural for me to try that at that point. In terms of uh, instant pleasure as opposed to watercolor day, I agree with you, and it's very astute that you see that. I do think I liked instant pleasure. I really did like it when it came out, but I feel like watercolor day is less stiff. I feel like I was less afraid to put out that. For, you know, the first record is really tough. You know, in all art, in all this stuff, it's very easy to start, and the hardest thing in life with anything, with books, with with anything. It's finishing. And I love finishing more than I like starting. I mean, starting's real fun, but finishing is, you know, not that easy to do. It's that long stretch of desert in between that you really just have to know that you're good at what you do and you're going to do it. But it's that first one that's really, really hard to get through. I really liked Instant Pleasure, but my goal on Watercolor Day was to loosen up a little bit. And certainly with my latest record in 2016, Circles and Squares, I produced and wrote everything. There was nobody, you know, I could do what I wanted to do at, at any given time. So that was even looser for me. I just played, you know, I wasn't thinking about getting everything perfect. So as I progressed, I've become a little uh, more forgiving of a whole lot of things. Well, speaking about getting things perfect, I think this is a great transition to the whole red button 
Project. So we're going to play the song Picture off the second album, As Far As Yesterday Goes, 2011. So pretty soon after the Matchbook cover that we just played, this was the next project on the list. It was the second one by Red Button. You know, there's something maybe a little more developed, just the fact there are other, at least one other guy in the room that you're paying attention to. Obviously, this is not your first co-writing experience. A lot of your big hits were co-writes with various people. Say something about this creative environment versus your solo stuff here. I mostly write songs myself, music and lyrics. I've written many songs with many different songwriters over the years as well. Just as long as songs get out there, I don't really care how many people are on them or anything like that. It's not about that. It's just how to get songs done. And when I was recording Instant Pleasure, one of the guys that came down to the studio was a guy named Mike Rickberg. He's a, an L.A. musician, songwriter, was in a popular band named Rex Daisy on Death and Records. He wrote a whole lot of different you know, movie scores. Anyway, we just really hit it off, tremendously hit it off. And we realized we liked the same kind of music. We didn't want to be the Beatles of 1965 or 66. You know, it wasn't a joke project. We just realized, hey, you know what? We want to try and write songs that are very natural to us. We don't even know if there's a market for it, but we want to put that out. So our first album, She's About to Cross My Mind, came out in 2007. And it sold a ton of records. I mean, it really did off the internet. I think we sold close to 30,000 records. That's a lot of records for an indie band. We didn't realize it. We just put it out kind of for the fun of it. And so when we got to the second record, as far as yesterday goes, we were doing the same kind of formula. I would bring him a bunch of melodies that I had written because that's kind of my wheelhouse. And he would say, Oh, I love that one. Or that one's already done. Let's just record it the way it is. Or, let me write on that one or stuff like that. And I will tell you, we had a fantastic marriage. I've never had a better marriage in terms of songwriting and things like that. We understood each other. We trusted each other. We were surprised by each other. I would bring him a melody. He would laugh out loud. He said, I just love this. This is straight out of, this is the monkeys or this is whatever it was. We've had so much fun doing it. And he would surprise me back by sending me back a bridge he would write or a, a verse he would write to a chorus that I sent him, but I couldn't come up with a verse. Whatever it was, we just trusted each other. And it turned out to, you know, three records full and a bunch of coolest songs in the world on Little Steven's Underground Garage. We really got a lot of great publicity. And anyway, I brought him to a song called Picture. And I just had kind of a chorus for it. It's the chorus that you hear. I saw a picture of you just the other day. And he turned it into something by his follow-up to that original melody. And the reason I love this song is when I listen to it back, it's just there's something very wistful about it that kind of sums up my songwriter, or in this case, mine and Mike's songwriting. But it makes me feel something. And we can name 20 or 30 of my own songs that maybe don't make me feel anything. I like the song. I sing it, but they don't necessarily make me feel something. And that's another level of a song. That's the song itself. That's the recording. That's the vocals. There's so much that goes into making you actually feel something. So I love it when I just run across one or two or three that I actually feel. And I really do feel picture, especially at the end when I'm doing that thing, when I'm singing, I sing lead vocals on that. Mike sang the, the middle section. Mm-hmm. But at the very end, when I, when you hear me doing the, a song picture of it, just the other, and then you hear the background go, <gasps> it just really gets me. I really feel that. And that's an extra sense of satisfaction. 
So maybe a good initial thing, since we just played Matchbook covers, to talk about the difference in lyrical approach. Is the difference here because Mike helped with the lyrics on this? or you know, This seems a very coherent, there's some repetition in a nice way that kind of mirrors the repetition in the melody, but between the various verses here, so you got a very vivid, you're, you've captured a moment of being wistful, whereas 
I'm not even entirely sure what's going on in Matchbook Cover. Like, you, it starts with a, she wrote her number on Matchbook Cover before you knew it, they were secret lovers. You start telling the story, but then 10 seconds later, another take before we lose the sun. It's like using this Hollywood imagery. And then we go back to a love song and you even, they even say, meanwhile, back at, like, there's more than one thing going on in Matchbook Cover, whereas picture is, you know, very focused, very unified, even though it's a longer song. With Matchbook Cover, it was just a bunch of images that came to me that fit the music. And, you know, a lot of times I don't know what it all means. I don't care. I'm not even sure what emotion exactly. I mean, with the Hey Jude part, like, I understand that. But the little, like, what is the comment about? (laughs) They were secret lovers. Like, I'm just relating a little story. Like, I'm not even sure. Whereas this one, you know, with picture how you're supposed to feel. Like it's telling you, whereas the other one, it's just, it's a melody, it's free floating. You can kind of interpret it emotionally however you want. That's right. And they're very different songs with different approaches. One is based on just fun. It's throwing some lyrics together with a melody and maybe there's two melodies in the song or two time signatures, as you mentioned. And I'm just having fun. That's really what's happening there. And I'm throwing out fun phrases. They're very imagistic. So it's kind of free floating fun in that song. But Picture really does tell a different story. It's a a more serious song. I feel like Matchbook Cover definitely, to me, captured a fun feeling. But it didn't have to tell a story of having fun. It just was that. It just felt that way to me. And that's why I go back and I listen to it. I can't tell you I go back and listen to every one of my songs. There are bands that I love. I listen to every one of their songs back in the day. But now there's one or two that I can say that I've listened to it's as fresh today as it's ever been. It just really gets to me. With picture, that wistful feeling, I feel like it, it was captured. For me, and as I say, it's about an audience for one for me. I'm thrilled if other people like my songs or my records or whatever. I'm not phased if they don't. I just know that I want to make something that gets onto the level of feeling without it being, uh, well, we should have this instrument here because that's the right thing to do. I don't care if it's the right thing or wrong thing to do. I just want to know, does it sound good for the song? Does it make you feel something? Sure. And there's a lot more layers in the recording of Picture here as well. Can you say a little more about, you know, I know that on your solo albums, at least the first two, right, it's it's you doing most of the instruments except, you know, some strings and things like that. Was that kind of the same? It was just you and Mike doing this or were you bringing in, we've got our studio drummer and how is the actual production process working on the Red Button stuff, in particular the song? Well, it was different than my solo stuff. Mike and I played all the instruments on the records, on our records. And Mike was the producer. And I really want to make, you know, that's a big point because he's a fantastic producer. He really understood what we did and he made the sound. He really did. He made the sound. And it was great to be able to rely on him to do that. You know, with the solo stuff, my first record was done, was produced by a guy named Dorian Crozier. He's a fantastic studio musician and producer. And he brought in a whole lot of different people to work on my record. The Rembrandts and uh, John Fields played bass. And there are a lot of musicians on there. So I didn't play every instrument on there by any stretch of the imagination. Dorian is a top drummer in the music business. He played drums unbelievably on that record. He was great. And then with Watercolor Day, I worked with Rick Gallego from Cloud 11. We co-produced that record. And I played a lot of instruments on that record, but more so than a, it's my pleasure. But there were other terrific musicians in on that. Rick played a lot of bass on that record as well. 
I was transitioning to doing a completely solo record. And that's what Circles and Squares was. That's where I played everything and produced it and that whole thing. And there were a few outside musicians on Circles and Squares, but basically that was the transition. With the red button, Mike and I played the instruments, but Mike produced everything. Our roles at the red button were extremely clear as it went. Some of the arrangement issues become... You know, that could be a production decision, that could be a songwriting decision. So, for instance, over the, and though we still got lots to see and places left to go, but in the end we're left with memories. So about a minute 20 in, you've got these loud Mellotron oboes that are right in the forefront. They're taking up a huge, draped over the whole thing, which could very easily have overwhelmed. But it's actually the kind of thing, you know, it's like any good keyboard fill kind of thing where you don't even necessarily notice it. Since there's such a through line for the melody through the whole thing. You know, you're focusing on the vocal. So you could have a pretty strong backing, you know, this instrumental thing that just has lowered itself really on top of like a blanket, but yet it still is not distracting. That seems a brilliant little piece of, I don't know if it's arrangement or actually just mixing to actually make that work. Well, you use the word brilliant and I give full credit for that to Mike because those were his ideas. Many of the songs on the red button did. I think we did close to 40 songs. I had input. Maybe we should do this or let's add a guitar here. Um, I played a lot of lead guitar on those songs, but it was mostly Mike. I mean, he really, you know, in terms of production, he really just had brilliant ideas. And I would always say, hey, when are you finished up with that? And I couldn't wait to hear it like I was getting a new record. So when you mentioned the Mellotrons here and things like that, he really deserves the uh, pat on the back for that. Well, let me ask you one more thing. So uh, you, you've mentioned the you know, all the do-to-do's and ah's and, you know, I imagine that's something you had quite a lot to do with. Certainly the two of your voices layering on that sound sounds great. At a certain point in the song, it's not just that you say the line and then the ba-ba-ba-ba's answer it. It's like right at the beginning of the verse, we're actually going to fill this up Beach Boys style. I heard a tape of all the songs we used to play. So we've got at least four audible voices, you know, harmonies that are singing the words, but then harmonies right over top of that, you know, in the same way that the Mellotron oboe thing could have been distracting, you know, again, just the idea to like, eh, we don't have to hold back on our Beach Boys-ness. We can actually just put it right over the entire, treat it like another keyboard part, basically, put it over the entire verse. Yeah, it's interesting that you mentioned that because on this latest record that we have, it's a compilation, but we added six songs and then four acoustic versions, and we had to choose which acoustic versions that we want to do, and Picture was one of them. And I'll say something about that. The Picture acoustic version just really gets me. It really gets me. It's all stripped down. That wistful feeling really comes across, especially in the last two minutes of that song. It just gets me when you strip away all the instruments for it. And yeah, it's just one of my favorites, I have to say. As we transition to our last thing, we're actually going to play a little suite of, it's listed as two tracks, but it's actually three songs. The very beginning of your most recent album, Circles and Squares. It's Shine, Circles and Squares, and what's the third one? Go. Yeah. Tell us about, you know, this, again, the move 
from now you've done two albums with the red button at this point and you're moving to your third solo album how did this inform this you said you said this is a move to you playing more of the instruments yourself circles and squares started as an album i had written about six or seven songs for a i fell in love with a woman that the songs came so naturally to me i've never been so inspired i literally just wrote so many songs and those are a lot of songs that ended up on circles and squares then I decided to kind of put some other things that were going on in my life on this record. So it just wasn't a love song. And one of them was circles and squares. And that's exactly how I paint. I go to a canvas and I just paint circle and I paint squares. And then I interject them and put them on top of each other and things like that. And that's kind of how I like my life. Very simple. Just circles and squares. I thought it would be a good title for the record. And at the beginning, I stuck a little melody I was working on called Shine, and I just really enjoyed doing it. It was just fun to do the oohs and ahs, you know, just do all those backgrounds and layer them. Those are all my voices. I just love doing that in the studio. And it breaks down into this little section, the kind of like a 10cc little thing. And I don't go about thinking of things like that, saying, what would they do there? It's just in me to do, because that's what was influencing me so long ago. It stayed in me. You know, you take a bunch of things that you listen to, and then it comes out of you, and it, that's your style. That's who you are. You know, it's not one particular thing. So it has a bunch of different melodies in it, and then I thought, hey, that would be neat to transition into circles and squares. And then it transitions into this piece I've had for 10 years, a song called Go, and I never could write another verse to it, or I could never turn it into a three-minute song. And I thought, well, it deserves to live. It's a nice little tag. So you play with these things, and before you know it, it became a suite of songs. And this suite of songs is what uh, KCRW decided to play quite a bit when the album came out, which was a thrill because they're a taste-making station, and you know a whole bunch of serious stations played as well, The Loft, and it kind of went around the world and became the single from this record, these, this suite of songs. Now that was 2016, and then 2017 you have the release of the third Red Button album, which is as you said, largely a repackaging of the first two, but with some extra tracks on it. I noticed your most recent release is another kind of reworking of a red button thing, which is this version of Ooh Girl from the first album with Peter Noon from Hermit's Hermit's singing, which is crazy. Do you want to say a little more about sort of what you're doing? I know music is not the only iron that you have in the fire as, a, as an author and as a psychologist now. What are you working on musically and otherwise that you want to talk about to finish us off here? Well, a few quick things. I have a new book out called 21 Ways to a Happier Depression, which is about, well, exactly 21 things you can do when you fall into a rut. I have a practice where people, I see them, and I really try and bring out the best of their creativity and expand their lives through art, through the things that they say. I could never do that. And I said, really? You know, because I had to go through those things. So I really know how to connect somebody into making things. And that really does expand your life. So there's that book. I'm doing a lot of painting. I'm uh, putting together a new record. I don't want to tell you about it right now, but I will when the time comes. It's very unique. And finally, I did a film in 2012 that's playing in England right now on Sky Arts Network. It's played all over the world. It's, it's a film called Beatles Stories, where I interviewed a lot of people who had a story about them at the Beatles, Sir Ben Kingsley and John Boyd and Art Garfunkel and all their engineers and former girlfriends and Brian Wilson, just tons of people with a personal story, me and a handheld camera, 
and just shop their stories and put them together. It's called Beatles Stories. It's on Amazon and iTunes. And I'm doing a volume two, Beatles Stories volume two right now. So it's my second documentary. Which is just more footage from the first 80 interviews, or is it actual additional interviews? No, they're brand new stories, brand new stories. I've already flown, you know, 30,000 miles to, uh, to find these stories and to shoot them. So it's very exciting. And I think if you like Beatles stories, really, you're going to love this because it's, it's different and it's stories you haven't heard and told by the people in their environments. So it's just very simple and that's just another thing. So I'm directing a movie. I'm doing a lot of painting. I'm hoping to put together a show fairly soon. Well, it's great to, to see, you know, as you say, this, this whole jump right in can do attitude. I, I mean, I'm imagining that it was your success from the initial commercials and songwriting that has sort of given you, you know, at least financially the freedom to like, Hey, I'll write a baseball book or something as opposed to if you were still chained to chapel music, say, and those songs had not done nearly as well, you might feel like you had to think more in terms of career and less in terms of how do I please myself? What is the next? project that's really going to excite me so it's it's wonderful that you can do that i think that every time i have an idea about something i think is it a book is it a movie is it a song is it i can't quite figure out what it is but i didn't have those tools when i was in my 20s i just was testing myself as a songwriter and i had success in it thankfully i'm grateful for that and then i did a book on baseball not because you know i was wealthy from it i wasn't but i felt it you know, and so for me, my oxygen is creativity. I'm a happy person when I'm making things, when I'm making decisions about, you know, how long should that interview be, the editing I'm doing on a movie, or, hey, I just played guitar on this particular song I'm recording. I just love to create. So honestly, if I was making money doing it or not, I, I have to do it. That's who I am. Well, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciated uh, immersing myself in your, your music for the past few weeks here. Thank you so much. I'm really honored to be on your show, and I uh, very much appreciate the great question. All right, so here is the trilogy of songs.
Man, oh man, Seth is a creative powerhouse. You can read all about his various endeavors at Seth.com. Yes, he actually got Seth.com, including his baseball letters books, the Beatles movie. He has recordings of many songs that are not on his albums. You can see his art, etc., etc. If you enjoyed this interview, head on over to NakedlyExaminedMusic.com and subscribe. And again, if you want this to continue, to be sure this continues, you will need to contribute at Patreon.com slash NakedlyExaminedMusic. If enough of you make very small recurring donations, this will for sure be going on for years. And if you do not, well, who knows? I have been a creative person myself. The mixing is now nearly done on the new Mark Lint album. It still needs mastering and album art and other things, so it'll be several weeks. I'm hoping it'll be ready by the holidays, but we'll see. You can hear the songs in their current state at patreon.com slash marklint. And of course, I would appreciate your support in that endeavor as well, if you are so inclined. But most of all, keep on musicin'. Until next time, this is Mark Lintemeyer signing off.